my name's John. I know a, a lot of you guys, but just in case you didn't know, I, I work with uh, the youth group here at New Life, and I get to do that with an awesome team. I get to do that with Josh and BJ and Sadie and Alina. Wonderful group of people, and it's, it's just a blast. So thank you for your prayers for our most recent Alaska trip. Uh, there's going to be some information coming your way on that soon enough. So thank you for that. It was, it was a good, good mission trip. God, our Father, is awesome. Okay, so what I want you guys to do right now, real quickly, is think of something that, you, that, that brings uh, fear in your heart. <laughs> like, why are we doing that? What a way to start, right? So th- just think with me. I think if we're going to be honest with this psalm today, I think we've got to be honest with our Lord and with our heart. And so think of something that causes fear. I just want to give you a couple of seconds to do that. When you hear that word fear, what comes to mind? And if nothing can come to mind yourself, let me help you out. So earlier, earlier this week, as I was preparing for this message, my older son, Ezra, walked into the room and he says, Dad, are you afraid? And I was like, afraid of what? He says, afraid to stand in front of all of those people and, and teach and preach. He's 12. He just turned 13 this last week. I said, no. I said, there's no need to be afraid of them. I said, it, it's right here in the text. It says in verse 4, you know, we, we shouldn't be afraid of people. What can they really do to me? And I don't know. I think that flew over his head. A couple of days later, I was sitting with my daughter on the back patio. And we were looking up at the sky, and it was evening, and it was getting darker and darker, but we wanted it to be even more dark. We were looking for those shooting stars. So I asked the boys, hey, turn off the light in the kitchen, in the patio. And right when they did that, right when they turned the light off, she jumped in my arms, and she, was just, and she said, Daddy, I'm afraid. And I said, there's no need to fear. I said, I have you right here in my arms. Seeking to practice one of my major points, I quoted a Bible verse to her, little four-year-old. I said, don't you know that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So she smiled and laughed, and we cuddled some more, looking for those shooting stars. It was sweet. Now, that's two out of the three of my kids. I'm not trying to leave the third one out, Levi. He, he just doesn't necessarily have a healthy relationship with fear. Our goal as parents has been the, you know, something different. We've been trying to instill that into his mind. He, he used to think when he was younger that he could just run out into the road because he could outrun those cars. And I'm just like, no, Levi, that's not how it works. Or he would climb really high in a tree, and all of a sudden, he's like 40 feet high in this tree. He just doesn't have the capacity of fear yet. And he's 10 years old now, so pray for him. Hopefully that happens. So fear, what, what is it? What is fear? I have a, a definition here that comes from some psychologists. It says, fear is an emotional response induced by a perceived threat, which causes a change in brain and organ function, as well as in behavior. We're going to see that in the psalm. Um, a fear can lead us to hide, to run away, or to freeze in our shoes. Fear may arise from a confrontation or from avoiding a threat, or it may come in the form of discovery. And so, as you probably are aware, there is a spectrum with fear. Silly things like, you know, you go see that scary movie and it freaks you out. Um, or you ask a girl on a date and your heart's just pumping rapidly. 
What about sharks? Who's afraid of sharks in this room? Sharks freak me out. I don't know why. I have a weird, weird fear of sharks. Maybe it's just their mindless, beady eyes. I don't know. Um, it's a scary thing for me to swim in the ocean. So come beach bash with the youth group. I get in the ocean. I'm just like, this is freaking me out. What if like Jaws is coming right there with the wave, ready to take me out? Or even the river. I don't know if you guys saw this. Two years ago in the Columbia River, there was a shark eating a seal. I'm like... It was, it was fine in the ocean, because uh, I loved the river. Now it just elevates my fear all the more. What about flying in an airplane? Um, I don't like flying in, air, in an airplane, um, and so I don't know why I look up this stuff online, but I don't know if you saw in the news just three weeks ago, Delta's engine blew. Did you guys see this in the news? If you're afraid of flights, don't look that one up. It freaked me out. I just couldn't believe it. And Pete and the passengers were there like recording with their phones. Like, it's horrible. Just don't look that stuff up. And the mission trip most recently uh, reminded me of another great fear uh, to Alaska. Uh, I, I was the one who spotted a bear almost on a daily basis. Like, it was absolutely ridiculous. Like, it's just like from me to the exit door over there, there's just, there's just this bear munching on some berries and just looking at you. And I'm like, is that thing going to attack me? I don't know. But I have this weird fear of bears as well. But, you know, honestly, I don't know if I would congratulate the youth group more because the bear didn't attack them or because they survived my unbearable jokes and puns all week long. They barely made it out of there alive. Just bear with me on, on this as I continue. I know, I, I hear the moans and groans of Chelsea. I see you right there. There she is. Okay. <laughs> Um, or what about extreme athletes? Like this guy here um, decided to jump out of an airplane at 25,000 feet over in California, Simi Valley, and he had to land on this 100 feet by 100 feet net, and he had no parachute. He just wanted to jump out of an airplane without a parachute to see if he can do it, and to be the first human to do that in recorded history. Good job, Luke. I don't know if I would ever do something like that. What about this guy here? Maybe you heard about... Um, oh, go forward here. Is this working? Alex Honnold, have you guys heard about him? This guy who said this was the best day of his life, this would be the worst day of my life if I had to do something like this. He was the first person to climb Yosemite's 3,000-foot uh, Capitan uh, without ropes, no climbing gear or anything. He free-climbed this mountain. Crazy. If you haven't seen the documentary, check that out, or he has a cool TED Talk about it as well. Highly recommend that. Or what if you are this Florida woman you wake up in the middle of the night because you hear something in your pool and you see this giant uh, crocodile or alligator, whatever's over there in Florida. I don't know. I get those confused. Um, all of these things can produce fear. Okay, those are silly examples. Let's, let's uh, up the fear ante. You could be thinking to yourself, if you're uh, pre-college, um, when I go to college, am I going to find the job I want afterwards? Is it going to be waiting for me? I was a philosophy major. I understand that fear. Um, then keep the train of thought flowing. Once you find a job, can you keep it? Up the fear factor even more. An unexpected call from a friend waiting or wanting to commit suicide. That was hard. And another unexpected call from a friend dealing with an affair. Yet another unexpected call from a friend not knowing what to do in their marriage because their spouse is going downhill fast. Or, to pick up a thought from Scott last week, we leave the news on trusting in the word of the Democrat or Republican leader over and against the word of God, resulting in great fear for a country. 
obviously, the big idea has something to do with fear. So let's take a look at that. The big idea comes in my mind as I read through this psalm by way of contrast, and I hope that's helpful for you. Taking to heart man's word leads to fear, resulting in madness. Trusting in God's word by his help, that's key, that's important, I'm going to highlight that later, produces faith resulting in praise. Let me read that one more time for you guys. Taking to heart man's word leads to fear, resulting in madness. Trusting in God's word by his help produces faith, resulting in praise. If you had to choose one of those, where do you want to place yourself? Naturally, I think we would want to place ourselves in trusting in God's word, and that's what this psalm is all about. So let's jump into the intro. Open up your Bibles to Psalm 56, if you haven't already opened up your Bibles to Psalm 56 yet, or your phone, whatever your choice is. Psalm 56. The intro is really important. Let's check this out. It says here, To the choir master, according to the dove on far-off terebinths, a miktam of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. It provides a very helpful clue for us, and I highlight it in red for you guys. I don't want to spend too much time talking about that first part. We can talk about that later if you want. Uh, catch me after the service, according to the doves, far off terebinth. There's a lot to say about that, but that's not where, the direction I want to take it. I want to focus more on this part of the psalm. It says, when the Philistines seized David in Gath. So there's a very specific story in David's mind, obviously, because that's when he wrote it, that he has in mind. So what I want to do, and I have it up here for you, or if you want, you can turn there in your scriptures. I want to look at 1 Samuel 21, specifically verses 10 through 15. We're going to look at more verses in this psalm throughout this message, but right now this is where I would like to start. So the psalmist, um, David, does any... uh, Philistine come to mind for David when you, when you hear the word Phil, the Philistine. Who comes to mind? Goliath, right? So, so David has had good experience of trusting in God, no doubt. We have the story there to prove that. Um, but right now, David's in a time of his life where he's running away. He's running away from Saul. And the whole, just go read First uh, Samuel. If you have nothing to read this week, read First read Samuel. There's a lot there about David running away from Saul. Saul being anointed king, David being anointed king, Saul not really liking that too much and going after David. So here David is on the run. And it says, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And that's in Philistia. So he's running away from one enemy to another. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack mad men that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? We have enough crazy people in Gath, he's saying. Shall this fellow continue or or come into my house? 
Notice the words about fear, and I highlight them for you in red. David took those words, the jeering and reviling, to heart. He took the words of man, and it freaked him out. This is the context in which he's writing this psalm. So as we continue to read Psalm 56, I encourage you to keep this passage, this context, fresh in your mind. Where is that fear ultimately coming from as David mentions that throughout this psalm? It comes from the words of man, jeering and reviling him. So two more comments and then we're going to jump in this psalm. First, I want you to check out the entire psalm. Here it is. You don't have to read it. I just have this up here as a visual for you. I want to highlight something that David is focusing on. Check that out. Look at all those words in red. All those words in red have something to do with the enemy of David. This psalm, he's reflecting on either the Philistines or Saul chasing him. Those are our two options. And it kind of relates even to last week's psalm. Remember, one of the enemies of David was in his very house. It was someone who was a close companion, a friend, someone he walked around in the temple with. So David understands what it's like to have an enemy in the house of God and on the outside. So that's what he's focusing on in this psalm. He's bringing that to God's attention. He's saying, this is what freaks me out. That's why I asked you in the beginning of this message, what really freaks you out? Bring that to God's attention. You have to, in your heart, say, God, this is what I'm ultimately dealing with. This is what I'm struggling with. God wants you to be as real with him as he wants to be with you. And we have to bring those to the Lord. So look at all those statements about the enemy. Another thing before we jump into verse 1. Again, here's the, the psalm. I want you to notice the structure. As we read through it, we're going to find two very important clues, two very important clues that help us focus on the big idea that I mentioned earlier. And so, it's basically David saying, in God I trust, and in his word I praise. Verse 4, he says that, and following up that idea down there in verse 10 and 11, he says the same thing, in God's word I praise, I trust in him. So that's the focus, that's the point that David is trying to make in this psalm. So let's go through this verse by verse now. Here's the first two verses. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. He's trying to highlight that point. It's rough for him. For many attack me proudly. Notice immediately the players in this verse. Observe the contrast with me. And I have it in there in red and, and blue. Here he's contrasting God, and he wants God to be gracious to him. So David's desire is for God to be gracious, whereas he's recognizing man wants to see his fall. That's how David's thinking. God, please be gracious to me because look at my circumstances. That's, I think, a key prayer as we are trying to offer our fear up to the Lord. What freaks you out? What produces fear in your heart? I believe the first thing we ought to say in our conversation with God about that is, God, please be gracious to me. Look at my circumstances. Look at what's happening. Look at what's going on. God, you, please be gracious to me. It's a plea for grace, and that's how David starts the psalm. I encourage you to make that a daily prayer, and especially a prayer when you have fear rising up in your heart. God, please be gracious to me. Please be gracious. So again, based on the context of this psalm, what does David ultimately fear, continuing when he says in verse 3, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. 
What is that fear ultimately? Remember, it was the words of man. I'm going to keep going back to that Samuel 21 passage because it provides the helpful context for us. We have to really recognize, God, when I'm afraid of, and you fill in the blank, I want to learn to put my trust in you. Not my circumstances, not what I see, not what's most obvious out here, but I want to learn to put my trust in you, Lord. So David, reflecting upon his fear, is now recognizing, man, when I'm fearing, when man's saying things that aren't really making me happy, I need to learn to trust in you. I've got to put my trust in you, Lord. Now, I want to add a little bit of information to this. Again, the context is so cool. As David was walking through Gath, so again, go back to the First Samuel 21 passage. As he's walking through Gath and he approaches the men there, even King Achish, and then they start reviling and jeering him, you know what David's carrying? This is really interesting. He's carrying Goliath's sword. Okay, so hold that into your, in your mind. I, w- I want to show you this. The sword had to be a recognizable weapon among the Philistines. I mean, it was carried by a giant. He's probably not carrying some small little blade. So check this out in 1 Samuel 8 through, uh, 21, 8 through 9, just a couple of verses before. Then David said to Ahimelech, he met one of the priests there, Then have you not a spear or sword at hand, for I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business requires haste. So he's saying, I forgot my stuff. It's kind of like showing up at a shooting range without a gun. We're like, King David, what are you doing? And then he says, and the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. Do you notice David's relationship with this weapon? And I want to highlight it for you. Here is King David, anointed by God. He's saying there is none like that weapon. None like it. Perhaps David was relying on past experiences. Perhaps as he saw that sword, he's thinking, I've done this before. I'm going to make my way through Philistia. I'll be fine, especially if I carry this relic around with me. Everything should be good to go. I think he's relying on a past experience and not trusting in God. Okay? So it's just a hunch, but I don't think those are kingly words, especially a king who serves and worships God. There is none like Goliath's sword, please. I don't think those, those words should have ever come out of his mouth. Rather, I think David should have been saying, there's none like the Lord, and that's why I'm going to be okay. But again, that's what he learns afterwards. Okay? That's what he reflects on afterwards. Therefore, I believe, now this is conjecture, this is just an opinion, take it with a grain of salt. I believe David thought to himself, surely the weapon of their defeated giant soldier, by me no less, will strike fear in their hearts and I will be left alone and granted access through their land. So David takes the sword and heads to Gath. Perhaps the sword didn't have the desired effect he had hoped for. He became much afraid simply because they were saying things. They weren't even physically attacking him. The the power of words, especially as it relates to the fear in our hearts, it's huge. So David reacts not in the right way. But I believe David is learning from his experience, especially upon reflecting upon uh, what just happened in his life. He says in Psalm 56.4, In God, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? So he's, he's recognizing as he's retracing his steps as he went through Gath, he says, you know, I should have just trusted in God. 
And at this point, in my mind, it almost becomes like one of those, like, this is what David should have done as he was going through the, the land of his enemy. In God, whose word I praise. Now, check this out. That phrase, in God, it can also be translated this way. By God's help, I will praise his word. I can't do that by myself. There's no way that I can praise in God's word in and of my own strength. And when you are going through times of fear, there's going to be no way that you can praise God and his word by yourself. That's where the gracious plea is so powerful in this. David starts by saying, God, please be gracious to me. Look at my circumstances. Look at my enemies. And by your help and your help alone, I am going to be able to trust in your word. That's the conclusion that he's coming to. What a good conclusion he's made. So in other words, when I make a plea for God's grace, he will help me praise his word. Now that David has that perspective, he asks this very necessary question. What can flesh do to me? I've got God on my side, is what he's thinking finally in this psalm. He already shared his thoughts about man in verses 1 and 2. We, we saw that. They trample on him all day long. They hound him. But now he is going over it yet again, highlighting more information about the men. So he's painting a picture of his enemies as utterly evil people seeking to stomp out his life from existence. Check this out. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. Wow. I want to modernize this a little bit for you. I try to put it in my own words based on the Hebrew. So check this out. I think in other words, David is saying this, they twist my words. They don't really understand me and they want to see me fall. Every time they think about me, they are scheming. They want to see my downfall. In the shadows, they plot against me so as to end my life. They just want to see my destruction, is what David's saying as king. And I know maybe in your life, in your experience, maybe there's been those kind of people who just want to see your destruction, your own downfall. How sad is that, that there are people like that? I pray that you know, we would never be those kind of people that just are waiting in the shadows, plotting someone else's downfall. What a hard way to live. But with this plea here, how raw, how honest, the emotional pain he is experiencing from his fear is very, very real. So is there no end to the work of his enemies? So David keeps thinking about this. <clears throat> and verse 7 says, For their crime will they escape? He's basically saying, God, look at everything they've done against me. Look at what the Philistines are doing to your people. Look at what Saul is doing to me, your anointed king. Are they going to escape that? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. Now, I don't blame him for saying this. I think this is something really hard to consider, that a person, a man of God, would say such a thing. But do you blame him in what's going on in his life? Have you ever had this thought towards someone before in your life? I think if we're honest and real, maybe. I remember um, I, I just purchased my uh, new Maui gyms. And I love these sunglasses. And this was, oh my gosh, like 14 years ago. I would never make the mistake of purchasing an expensive pair of glasses again. Um, but I left them in my car one day. That was the only thing in my car. And this was down in the armpit of Oregon in Albany, so go figure. Um, I lived there for years, I can say that. Um, and so I left them in my car. 
And then I wake up one morning, I see the, 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 gla- the uh, glass, the window, bent out. It's just like, no, my car just got broken into. This is horrible. So I open my car, look in for everything, and I'm like, my glasses are gone. I'm like, that sucks. You know what immediately I started doing in my heart? <laughs> this prayer right here. I didn't even know this prayer existed. But I was just like, God, would you just rain down fire from heaven on whoever did this? And I need my sunglasses back, right? I Honestly, I don't know about you, but I've had those. Or I was a server for years, and I remember one time, pretty sure I even still know who it was, um, I remember one time someone stole money from my table. And I was just like, ooh, that's not good. And um, again, those prayers, those emotional prayers just rise to the surface quickly. God, bring your judgment. Come on, I want to see, if ever I want to see you move, Lord, I want you to move and bring judgment upon this person's life. Not, not the best moment in my life, I admit that. But all that to say, I get how David is praying this. Okay, I understand his heart. Right or wrong, I understand it. So in the bitter moment of reflecting upon his enemies, this is what I should have done too, I should have recognized how close God was to me. Think about this. And you're, now, now, God wasn't just close to David when he was realizing all of this for the first time and when he finally had his theology straight about how close God was to him. Even without realizing that, God was close to David. Do you see the, do you see the difference there? He didn't have to understand that for God to be close to him. He was able to praise God for that afterwards, for sure. But in the moment, this is what David reflects on. He says, you have kept count of my tossings. You've put my tears, uh, my, my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? So again, think about in your life, every moment maybe you've had just so much emotional pain and frustration caused by whatever fear there might be. And then you express that emotional pain through tears because really there's nothing else you can do. You're at the end of yourself. Here is God sitting right next to you with a bottle. I got that tear. Here's another. Oh, you're crying again. Here we go. I'm going to collect that one. I'll remember what that tear is. And he keeps track of all those tears. Why does he do that? Why do we have a God that cares about our tears? No other God is written about that way. I studied world religion at Oregon State. I know that. No other God cares that much about the people here in this world. Our God comes alongside of the people and says, I will take count of your tears. I think this verse reveals the depth of God's concern for David's life. Again, even when David wasn't doing his best. This is just one of those verses that so easily applies to our life. God knows our tears, our pain, our tossing. What a beautiful way to express that God cares. One commentary described it this way. Apparently the idea is that the speaker's tears of lament be preserved with care, similar to that given to water, wine, or milk. Of course, this is especially meaningful in dry climates where fluids must be treated with great care. So obviously they're out in the desert, Fluid is something that you don't come across often, and when you do, you've got to make sure you preserve it accurately. So here is a fluid coming from the human eye, and here is God saying, I am going to keep that in a bottle safe. I'm going to preserve that for you. How great the resolved reassurance in God. So this is how David ends that section here. Verse 9, Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. He recognizes it. He gets it. At the af- after going through it, the process, because I think we all need to go through the process, he gets it. He says, God is for me. 
That's going to be one of the major points that I come back to at the end that's echoed in the New Testament. So tuck that phrase away. Paul says something great about it. So when David really takes the time to think about it, he gets it. He knows that God is for him. I encourage you this morning, take the time to let that truth richly dwell in your heart. Do you know that God is for you? Even when you're not perfect, even when you're not getting it, even when you're stumbling, acting the madman, making marks on a door, letting uh, your spittle run down your beard. Hopefully none of you have done that. But even if you have, God is for you. He loves you. And when you're crying about making those mistakes, he's right there taking note. Now that he has his focus once again on man, or on God, pardon me, um, as his reflection should be after he thinks about his enemies, he is reminded of what to do when he is afraid. Again, this is the big point. This is the big idea. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? He's letting that truth ring in his heart and in his mind. What can man do? Almost a mirror of verse 4, but do you notice something different? I'll give you a second. Look at verse 4 and verse 10 here. Do you notice something different there? It's a very, very small difference. I want to give you a clue here. So this is an Eloistic psalm. Maybe you guys have heard this before, but Elohim is just a Hebrew name for God. And it's used most often in the Old Testament. It's very common throughout. Um, every time you see the English word God in this psalm, it's actually just the Hebrew word Elohim. I want to show you that here real quick. So again, I have the whole psalm up here for you. Check out all the time David uses Elohim. And I just replaced English God with English Elohim. Same exact word. And so he mentions God by this name nine times. As he is approaching that big idea for a second time, because that structure is important, he uses a different name for God. Check it out. He uses Yahweh. And it's right there in your English as all caps L-O-R-D. He is now focusing on the covenant name of his God. When the Jewish person hears that, especially in a psalm like this, this is basically by exclamatory fashion. He's basically saying, this is why I trust in God. Because he's Yahweh. He's the one that's made the covenant with us. And he is never going to give up on us. So most likely the definition of Yahweh that comes to mind for the Jew is, um, Exodus 34, 6 through 7. You can go back to that later and check it out. The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's what the Jewish person, especially David, thinks as he's using this word Yahweh, especially in relation to all the problems that he's going through as a king that's just not doing the best job. This is the God that he's serving. Yahweh is the covenant God who is for his people and will not break covenant with them, no matter how far removed they get, because that's the grace of God. And it goes back to the first initial part of this psalm. Be gracious to me, O God. I need your grace. So then what word of Yahweh does David most likely have in mind? I bet there are many good answers to that question. Because when he says, it's kind of ambiguous. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord. So what word do you think he's actually talking about? Again, I think there's many good answers. Buy me coffee this week and let's chat. Um, my guess is 1 Samuel 16, 13. 
You can turn there later or write it down. This is when the spirit of Yahweh rushes into David as he's anointed king. David has the sure word that he is the king of Israel. He has that promise. And the spirit of Yahweh is with him. And the spirit of Yahweh isn't going to be removed from him. So I think that has something to do with it. He knows that God is going to keep him safe. So he boldly asks again, what can man do to me? He's beginning to see the contrast that's bringing fear in his life. And I believe that we ought to bring those fears to the Lord. And we need to see the contrast of who God is in light of our fear. So in other words, David is saying, Yahweh, I know what you're about. I know who you are. Man really can't do anything to me. Man doesn't stand a chance against your covenant. Most likely because David has reflected on how good Yahweh is, he moves, in verse 12, to be thinking about vows and thanking him. I mean, what a natural response. As you're thinking about how good God is in your life, doesn't that move you to worship? Doesn't that make you want to just say a vow like, God, I messed up over here in this way, and that was just not too long ago, but I make a vow. I want to follow you. I want to refresh my walk with you. I want to do that all over again. So David has in his mind that he is going to promise to do the right things before Yahweh. And he also has in his mind that man, because he's saved, he wants to give thanks to God. And isn't that what we do on a weekly basis? When we look at our week, when we look at our life as a whole, I just thank God that I'm still alive. I thank God that he's given me grace. And I don't say that lightly. I didn't meet the Lord until the end of high school, senior year. I am so thankful that he has loved me. Even when I didn't deserve that, God is gracious. He is so, so good. So he's saying, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you for how good you are. So David is a good king. He knows that locationally speaking, he ought to perform these vows and render these thank offerings in the presence of a priest. He gets that. So what's going on in David's mind is he's, again, context is important. He just escaped Gath. He finds himself in a cave in Adullam. He's sitting there in a cave and he's thinking, I'm going to make it back to the priest. I'm going to make it back and God's going to give me a chance, a chance to perform these vows. He's going to give me a chance to thank him all over again. What David is saying, in other words, is God is preserving me. He is going to keep me alive. How beautiful the protection that Yahweh offers David. And so he finishes the psalm by saying, For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. He gets it. He's like, you've done this, Lord, and I get to one day once again go to the presence of the priest and give him my vows. I get to go to the presence of the priest and thank him. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about Jesus being our great high priest. How awesome is it that we get to go in the presence of our high priest no matter where we are? How beautiful is that New Testament realization? But before I get too ahead of myself, check this little phrase out right here, the light of life. That I may walk before God in the light of life. Another way of saying that, actually, is an idiom, and when the Hebrew hears that, when the Jewish mind hears that, they're basically hearing Lord of living. Light of life, because there's light as you walk. Lord of living. God is alive, and so are you, and so you can experience him too. As most followers of Yahweh in the Old Testament, they lacked a robust 
theology of resurrection. You know that resurrection wasn't a real strong teaching in Bible times until Jesus actually started talking about it. And the disciples, even Jewish people hanging out with Jesus, they didn't understand that much about the resurrection. Jesus would talk about it often. He would say, you know, in just a little while, I'm going to go and I'm going to lay down my life and I'm going to die in three days I'm going to raise again. And they're like, and the text always says, and they were confused. They didn't really know what he was talking about. They didn't get resurrection. And so for David, we can't miss the profundity of this statement here. David's experience of God is contingent upon him remaining alive. And so that's why he says, I get to walk before God. I'm still alive. He's the Lord of the living. Mm. Now, what's hard about this psalm, and as we're coming to a close here, what's really challenging is I can't overpromise anything from Psalm 56. I can't say that you will immediately be relieved of all your fear if you trust in God. To me, that's a process. You may win some of those battles. Like David, he had success when he trusted in God and he defeated Goliath. And you might lose some of those battles among the same group he experienced defeat. He learns what it means to trust God throughout his life. And I pray that you do the same thing, that you don't give up. That just because maybe you gave way to fear once upon a time, or maybe it happened this week, who knows? Don't give up. It's a process. Keep walking with the Lord. Keep walking with him. So I told you the New Testament echoes um, two ideas here that I want to land with. And they're promises for us. Because this is what I can assure you. This is what I can promise you. Remember David said something about that? I know God's for me, Psalm 56, 9. In Romans 8.31, Paul says the same thing. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who? This is, this is the promise. This is what I can promise you in Christ. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I can promise you that. That's the word of God. Okay, I can promise that. And you can know fully that God is for you and who can be against you. Nobody. Another promise, this is what I was talking to my daughter about when she got so afraid, and I quoted this to her because Jesus says that he is the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you see that phrase that even Jesus uses here? You will have the light of life. But as the master teacher, and especially living it out and dying on the cross and raising again, he's bringing new meaning to that statement. What Jesus ultimately says with his life is he is the Lord of the living. And you don't only have to be alive this side of eternity to experience him. When you take your last breath, you will experience God forever. He is saying, in other words, I'm the light of life. You're going to walk in that. Not just in this life and the here and now, but forever. How beautiful. In Jesus, the one who conquered death, we proclaim him to be the one who is the Lord of the living. So this psalm, by the end, really does take this exhortational type um, structure and, and feeling to it. And there are many commentaries that suggest that. And they would say that it's in line with such passages like Exodus 14, 13, that says, when Moses was looking at the children of Israel, fear not, 
stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. You know, when Moses said that thousands of years ago, when he said that God will show you his salvation today, I believe I can say the same thing to you. God will show you his salvation today if you put your trust in him. And that happens if you call out to him and you ask God, would you please be gracious to me? That's how that works. You ask God to be gracious to you, and I guarantee you, I promise to you, he will be gracious to you. What terrible danger do you find yourself in, or have you been in, or foresee yourself being in? What I can offer you today is advice. My best advice is to simply get to know Jesus. Spend time in the gospel. That's the word in which we trust. I mean, really get to know him. Don't just wake up, open your Bible, and say, I read my Bible today. That's my uh, checkoff list. I'm, I'm good to go there. Jesus is more than a to-do list. He really is. He's a person. He wants to get to know you, and he wants you to get to know him. He wants you to walk with him every single day. You know, after one of the challenging teachings that Jesus gave his disciples, he looked at them, and a whole group of people just walked away because they're like, I can't handle that. And Jesus looked at his remaining disciples and said, are you guys going to leave too? Peter pipes up and says, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And Paul would encourage us elsewhere, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Again, to repeat the big idea here. Taking to heart man's word leads to fear, resulting in madness. Trusting in God's word by his help produces faith, resulting in praise. I want to commend you guys this week to continue to do that. I want to exhort you to continue to trust in God. And if you haven't done that, if you haven't placed your trust in God, I encourage you to do that. There's no better way to walk There's no better way to live. And guess what? The end result of that isn't at the end of the day that you can simply say that you trust in God. That's good if you can say that. But as you do that, context is so important. What chapter comes out of uh, after 1 Samuel 21? 22, you're welcome. And in chapter 22, what do we see? There were an entire group, 400 men that surrounded David. And the text describes them as people who were in debt, people who were discontent and people who were just frustrated and burnt out on life. As David himself was processing this psalm and recognizing that it's Yahweh who is for him, other people take note of that. As you trust in the Lord this week, don't be shocked if people see that and ask you about that. And I pray that we live our lives in such a way that people do ask us that question. What's so different? You're going through this really hard thing in life, but you're trusting what? Hopefully we can say we're trusting in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And I thank you that we have the the privilege, this opportunity to read it together, to proclaim its truth. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take these words, allow them to richly dwell in our heart. I pray that we this week would trust you. Maybe there's something that we're fearing. Maybe there's something that we're going through that we just can't see beyond. Maybe we're, off, we're just crying and just weeping. I thank you, God, for being close to us. 
I thank you for walking through not, not just the good times when it might be easier to pray and praise and read the word when nothing bad's happening, but when we're experiencing real fear that causes emotional pain. Thank you for being with us. In your name we pray. Amen.